We're going to do a quick circle back to statement six before we jump into statement seven. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a couple different passages tonight as we're looking at this report on human sexuality. If you don't have the statement from last week, that's okay. This is more of a summary, a recap. Uh, then, then we'll we won't be diving in deep again. Uh, you may remember statements four, five, and six share a lot in common and really lead into one another. And so we took them largely together last week. It was more of an overview, but uh, if you have any further questions, um, please feel free to bring those up. If you think they're relevant to the group, we can bring them up tonight. If it's uh, more of a one-on-one thing, we can do that as well. But there's something I want us to talk about relating to temptation because um, we have said that we believe even a heart's longing for something um, wicked is, is sinful and wrong, right? The, the heart uh, is not, we cannot separate our heart from our actions entirely and say, well, if my hands do it, it's sin, but if it's just on my heart, then it's okay. Uh, because all of us is to be submitted to uh, the gospel. Now, somebody is gonna bring up James chapter one. So flip over to James chapter one. And I think we need to look at James chapter one because it seems to bring a counterpoint. If you can't find James, go to uh, the book of First Peter where your pages are wrinkled because <laughs> we've been going through First Peter uh, and then just go back a book. Um, okay, verses 12 through 15 here. Uh, this is uh, James 1 starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right, so somebody explain to me really quickly, how would those verses seem uh, to be used against this topic that we have been, um, this point that we've been making over the last uh, couple weeks, that even desires are sinful. Uh, There's a chain of occurrence where lust comes first. Lust itself gives birth to sin. And it's seeming to make the distinction between those two. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be making, all right, you've got lust, you've got desire, but it's not sin until those, that, that lust slash desire, it, gives, it has to give birth in some way for it to become sin. That's, that's kind of the, the plain reading of this. Um, there are a few things that I want us to consider in light of this because um, we want to take very seriously. We don't just want to uh, proof text all the verses that sound good and then ignore the ones that uh, don't seem to make our point. And this one seems to make the opposite point. Um, but there's, I have this entire article right here. Uh, it's called Tempted from Without, Yet Without Sin. And it's talking about Jesus's temptation in particular. And the difference between the temptation that Jesus had externally versus the internal grabbing a hold of temptation and and longing for it and desiring it that we sinful people do. And the point of this article is to say Jesus did not 
um, have that same sinful internal temptation that we uh, finite sinful people have. And he even goes into this James um, passage to talk about it. Um, Here we go. One might try to argue that sin doesn't come into the picture until verse 15. You can read through that and you say, all right, well, there's, there's no sin until you get to that act in verse 15. <clears throat> and that James is there describing what happens when we begin to act upon our illicit desires. Hence, then and only then in the chain of events, uh, the chain of events that Stephen just described, he also describes it a chain of events. This chain of events which James describes, only then does moral culpability arise. But <clears throat> that is to introduce a too finely parsed technical distinction into a process James frames as a single organic movement. A single organic movement is the emphasis here. Well, I'll ask you when you read that paragraph, and we could we could even look more in the broader context if you kind of glance a few verses back, and if you glance forward a little bit, the main point here is not to give a full theological explanation for what happens between sin and uh, temptation and sin and, and all that. The point here is to say God is not the author of your temptations and your trials. So if the main point is kept in focus, what we can do is look here <coughs> and see um, that what's going on here. Excuse me, I'm sorry. <coughs> is is a single event of what we would describe as the internal temptation to sin. When we, as sinful people, this is different than Jesus's uh, temptation in the desert, in the wilderness. When we see something that is um, beautiful, that we must have, that we lust after, what is going on? Starting in verse uh, 13. No one can say that when, when he sees that, like, oh, I can't believe God is tempting me right now with this, um, this desire to steal this stack of cash. All right, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James is saying, God is not the one tempting you with that stack of cash. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The point is, this is your desire and your crookedness in your heart that makes that a sinful encounter. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and that sin... We can read verse 15 and say that sin is already there in that desire. And the sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, which is the end result of the enemy's attacks on the heart. So we can read this. And, and the way he puts it here, he's quoting a guy named Dan McCartney. He says, James is interested not in developing a precise theory of evil, but in making it clear that the processes of sin do not originate with God. And subordinately, in warning of the danger of allowing the deadly chain of events to start. That's this article. Look at your footnotes on statement six if you have them. This is footnote <coughs> number 62. Or if you are using, uh, John, I'm thinking of you, if you're using the original document, it is the footnote at the end of the first sentence in the second paragraph. Okay, so here's the statement in the in statement uh, six. It says, nevertheless, there is an important degree of moral difference between temptation to sin and giving in to sin, 
even when the temptation is itself an expressing of indwelling sin. All right, now this footnote down bottom is helpful because what we could be guilty of saying is, and again, we talked about this last week. Well, if I've I've already sinned in my heart by wanting it, I might as well take it. Right, and and what this is telling us, and what James I think is telling us is, when you encounter sin, no matter where along the chain, you stop it. And we don't want sin to bring forth greater fruit in our lives at any stage. So let's look at this footnote, number sixty-two. <clears throat> According to Owen, James chapter one, verses fourteen through fifteen, which we just read, describes a five-step process of sin. And how do those guys find more steps than I can find when they're reading these texts? First of all, the mind being drawn away. Second of all, the affections being entangled. I love that phrase. That is such a vivid description of what happens. Our affections get entangled and we are so often oblivious to our affections. We don't understand that our loves and our desires and what we're longing for, that is, we have to crucially monitor these things because that's exactly where Satan plays us the hardest. And so uh, step one is your mind is drawn. Oh, I see the, pe- the stack of cash. Second, the affections are being entangled. Oh, I want it. Three, the will consenting to actual sin. I'm going to take it. Your will says, I, I desire it. And now I'm going to go and I, and I am going to, uh, I, I've got to have it. Even if you, maybe you're not at the point yet where you can say, I'm going to walk over there and take it. You are consenting to sin when you say, I've got to have it. Already you have given that sin mastery over you, that temptation. You are giving it reign over your heart and over your potentially over your future actions. But if you can stop it there, that's good. But if not, here's step four. The conversation wherein sin is brought forth into view and step five, the stubborn course that finishes sin and ends in death. Each step, I like this, each step of the process is worse than the next. We are to be watchful against all enticements unto the conception of sin. But in particular, we must carefully attend unto all particular actions agreeable to God's will. Okay, we're going to stop right there. This is an encouragement for us to realize Satan wants to creep in in the most, in the, in the most sneaky ways. When we are most susceptible, when it doesn't feel like it's all that bad. And before it even necessarily takes action. And uh, James's encouragement and what we're reading here in this report is that we must fight the heart battle. And we must beware. (coughs) Comments and thoughts on that before we move on to statement seven. (coughs) All right. Let's move on to statement seven. I do have a little question. I guess you said something about Christ not being tempted in the same way that we were, and they have. Okay, now you're now you're using Hebrews language. All right, carry yeah, on. that's what I was <laughs> Hebrews two eighteen, yeah. where it says that like Christ Himself is suffering from being tempted in the wilderness. Yeah. And so like my thought is like, it seems like in my struggle too, I can relate to that because hey, I can see that my heart is tempted to want this thing. But I haven't. Like, but then I read. I don't know. I guess I'm confused with the five steps and how that. 
incorporates the Hebrews text where it says, like, hey, I, I feel like I'm suffering, but I'm not sinning. Like, is there, like, a step where, maybe it's step two in the five-step process, where I'm suffering but not sinning, like Christ? What do you mean by suffering? Mean, meaning external feel, temptation? Yeah, yeah. I can feel that, but then Christ wasn't internally desiring these things. You know what I mean? So that's why I feel like, where is this like connection? Or is there no connection at all? And I'm completely misunderstanding what he was Were y'all here? Were you here last week? Okay. Um, if you look at... <clears throat> Alright, the top of, top of statement six. You don't have it in front of you. Here's the language. <clears throat> when temptations come from without, the temptation itself is not sin unless we enter into the temptation. But when the temptation arises from within, which is what James is talking about, it is our own act and is rightly called sin. Does that answer the question? I I actually think that language of when we enter into the temptation is just vague enough, but also just vivid enough that I can I can kind of understand. All right, Jesus did not engage that temptation in any legitimate way. Well, he he did not give the temptation any legitimate engagement with his heart, because in the end, Jesus is blameless. And so he encountered that temptation perfectly. Um, and so in some senses, you and I, in theory, could do the same if the temptation never touches our hearts. Um, but as those who are, whose hearts are idol factories, I, I don't know that I've ever done that. And so then it's our dependence upon Christ's perfect uh, treatment of, of temptation that I'm able to have any hope. <laughs> With Christ being fully man and being tempted, then he would have been tempted to like way past our breaking point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So the analogy I've heard with this is um, imagine a paint stick. I'm kind of blending all these analogies right now, and paint stick's just what came to my mind. Imagine a paint stick that's kind of like clamped onto a table sticking out. If you put a 20-pound weight on it, uh, at some point, you don't even have to let go of the weight. At some point, the weight, before you let all 20 pounds onto the paint stick, is going to snap. So if Christians or if sinful people just use that, if people give in to the temptation, um, if we're the paint stick that snaps under the weight of temptation, we've not even felt the full 20 pounds. Jesus, however never gave in to the temptation. And so he felt the full weight of what what it could have been uh, that you and I often don't experience. But if we are able by the spirit strength to stand up under it, we do start to get a, a sense more and more uh, of what it is to with, to withstand temptation. But you're right, Christ endured it. Um, the ex- he, in, he endured to the end of temptation uh, and, and still did it perfectly and blamelessly, yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking through the logic of um, how our desires can also be sinful. It's not just when our desires become action. <clears throat> and I thought I remembered, I like don't have much of the catechism memorized, but I thought I remembered it saying something about how sin is like any want of conformity unto God. So if you think about that, like sometimes I pat myself on the back and I'm like, good job, Anjanette. You just felt angry and you didn't act on it. But actually, feeling angry in itself, if it's like for sinful reasons, 
is still bad, yeah. even though I didn't act on it. My desire was to do yeah. wrong things, yeah. and that is me not conforming to the image yeah. of God. Yeah. So, but rejoice and praise the Lord that you didn't act on it. Yeah, it's better. It's just yeah. not quite there yet. <laughs> Sanctification. Yeah. That's a perfect segue. Let's look over to statement seven, sanctification. <laughs> Kevin, I apologize. I think this is the first one that has color printing at the top. So the title is actually dark blue. I'm sorry. <laughs> also a copy of when I get I will get you page one eventually. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and this is where I want us to um, kind of just sit down for the next 10, 15 minutes. It's right here at Statement 7, Sanctification. Um, John, this is on page 10. We affirm that Christians should flee immoral behavior and not yield to temptation. By the power of the Holy Spirit working through the ordinary means of grace, Christians should seek to wither, weaken, and put to death the underlying idolatries and sinful desires that lead to sinful behavior. The goal is not just consistent fleeing from and regular resistance to temptation, but the diminishment and even the end of the occurrences of sinful desires through the reordering of the loves of one's heart toward Christ. Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, we can make substantial progress in the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Nevertheless, this process of sanctification, even when the Christian is diligent and fervent in the application of the means of grace, will always be accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections, with the spirit and the flesh warring against one another until final glorification. The believer who struggles with same-sex attraction should expect to see the regenerate nature increasingly overcome the remaining corruption of the flesh. But this progress will often be slow and uneven. <clears throat> and before we keep reading, I'll go ahead and say this again, this application to the same-sex attraction is, um, is warranted, but it, that, is, that can be applied to any sexual... Um, any sexual desire or temptation that any person feels that is ungodly. All right, so so we're talking any kind of, of sexual sin, and, and frankly, any kind of sin, any kind of sinful desire can be described this way, but again, this was written in the context of addressing this issue. Moreover, the process of mortification and vivification involves the whole person, not simply unwanted sexual desires. The aim of sanctification in one's sexual life cannot be reduced to attraction to persons of the opposite sex, though some persons may experience movement in this direction, but rather involves growing in grace and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Okay, a couple things I'd like for us to point out. Go back to the first paragraph. I think these paragraphs are loaded. And I think they're really good for us as Christians to think about because we can so quickly move into behavior modification as we're trying to um, think about what am I supposed to do as a Christian? Well, I'm supposed to stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. Well, what about stop loving that? Right. So this is applicable so widely to so many corners of our lives. 
Um, but I underlined in that first paragraph, the goal is not just consistent fleeing from and regular resistance to temptation, but the diminishment and even the end of the occurrences of sinful desires, even the end of the occurrences of sinful desires through the reordering of the loves of one's heart toward Christ. Let me give you a gross analogy. When a kid picks his nose and eats his boogers, I mean, that's a great temptation for little boys and maybe little girls too. I was never a little girl, so I don't know. Sorry, that was my grandpa's joke. I'm sorry, I'm turning into my grandpa. Um, so it's gross. You probably don't have that much of a strong longing to pick your nose and eat your boogers. You've grown up. You've changed. You've matured. Let that analogy kind of change how we view these things. These things, think back to high school you. You longed for things and loved things and, and were tripped up by things incessantly that you now find repulsive. Praise the Lord. Because the whole point is that we are transformed from our longings outward, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're transformed from the inside out, and so therefore the end of the occurrences of sinful desires is something that we should long for. We should not be okay always wanting the sins that we've always wanted, because that would show that maybe the Spirit isn't at work. Uh, we should constantly, and, and I'm not saying that if you struggle now with the same sin you struggled with uh, a month ago or last year or two years ago that you're not making progress. That's not what I'm saying because I really like the emphasis on the second paragraph on how this sanctification or this mortification of sin and the vivification involves the whole person. The whole person is going to be changed. And so if your life is made up of, of this and this and this and this, and this is really the one you want to attack. God might actually be growing you in this one and this one in order to down the road transform this one. And so I think it's, it's good for us to realize that the spirit is at the helm. God is at the helm. And our job is to cooperate. Look at Romans 6 verses 14 through 19. This is footnote 66. I'm going to look specifically at verses 17 and 18. Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now that, that's Romans 6 and Paul, he, he has to... Do one of those immediate things. Well, what I'm actually trying to say is, that's what, that's what Paul does here, because in the very next phrase he says, I'm, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Because what he's about to do in a couple of verses and say, actually, you're not a slave anymore. You're a child of God. And you live in freedom to righteousness, not slavery to righteousness. But for the sake of the explanation here, he says, you're no longer a slave to sin. Now you're a slave of righteousness. Your new master is holiness. And then at the end of verse 17, he says, excuse me, end of verse 19, he says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And um, the Westminster Assembly, when they gathered, 
put together, I think, a really helpful summary here. Uh, this is Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 13, paragraph 1, footnote number 69 on that page. Let this, just think about this in terms of your own growth as a Christian. Your sanctification, your growth in holiness. Says, for, um, paragraph, footnote uh Footnote 69. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. And they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. I think that language is profound, and I think it is precise, and I think it is accurate. The several lusts of the body of sin, sin no longer has dominion. Sins, uh, these words are important. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. Does it say all your sin is destroyed? Well, we still engage with sin, but the dominion of sin is destroyed. Sin has no power over you anymore. And um, <clears throat> the next phrase, the several lusts thereof. So the, our, our lusts for that dominion of the, the whole body of sin, the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. How do you reconcile this with the American call that if you want some, get some? Like, if you want it, get it. Chase your dreams. Do what your heart desires. If, you're, if there's any inkling within you that this is something you might want, you should have it. They don't fit. And so the world is going to hate this message. Your flesh is going to hate this message. I don't like this message. This is the message, the call to holiness, and the call to growth in sanctification. I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on this? Sanctification reaching to the heart and to the desires, its application. I just open it up now for some thoughts. <clears throat> The experience of this is like a double-edged sword because over time you see certain things that you're fighting against and struggling against and you sometimes you even overcome it by God's grace. But at the same time, you see more and more and more of your sin. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like running up the down escalator. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Does it drive you? I mean, what do you do with that? Does it drive you to hopelessness? No, in my own experience, seeing a, a sin being overcome is a, has a lot more profound effect than, mm -hmm. than the other side of the coin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you think, oh, it's real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also what it does, as you start to see the depth and depth of your sin and the vastness of it, it just shows you the vastness of grace. Mm-hmm. Right? It just makes Christ that much bigger and shows you your need for him even more and more. So it grows you in your dependence on him and your faith in him and your trust in him. Well, it's the old saying about for every look you take at your sin, you take 10 looks to Christ. That's it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And once you get to be Kevin's age, you have to take 12 looks to Christ. <laughs> to my age, it's hard to see anything. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, Kevin. You're my, you're my punching bag. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's critical in this conversation to understand that sanctification happens after salvation. Mm-hmm. And there's, I think, an attitude in... American Christendom that we can somehow sanctify our society uh, before anyone has in particular been saved. Um, I think specifically in this context, uh, there's been a lot of harm done through things like conversion therapy um, that have been put upon people who have not submitted themselves to Jesus Christ. Um, And the things that you might hope for become more like behavior modification. It's mm-hmm. much easier for someone to slip back into their old ways. Um, and because there's never been a heart change in the first place and you can't force that on someone. Um, so, I mean, this applies in all aspects. Like, uh, by the grace of God, we're here and by the grace of God, we are growing. Um, but, we can't, when we extend that to people who have not yet found the need, we become Pharisees. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's well said. And it's, it's hard enough for us to look at new believers who are continuing to live in sin and to not look down upon them and forget where we were just mere years ago. Um, much less how we view those who are still stuck in sin and how we treat them. And, um, I think that's, it's well said. Uh, and we have to be we have to be mindful of that. Again, it's it's like, how can you demand a dead person to pretend like they're alive? That's, I mean, that's, you can't. And so that's where um, you're absolutely right. A believer must choose to die to self. I mean, what was Christ's command to the disciples? If anyone would come after me, he must take his cross. Take up his cross. Yeah. Die to self and follow me. And that dying to self is not just in what you do. It's not just doing the mission trip. It's just, I'm just going to carry my cross to the Dominican Republic. Um, no, it is it is that heart change. It's like, I'm going to die to what I long for. And uh, and those who can, can choose by the spirit strength to die to their sexual longings that that this world tells you are so integral to your person and that do feel so close to the core of who you are, if a Christian can say, I'm going to deny that for the glory of Christ, that's a witness to the Spirit's work in profound ways. And that's the kind of thing that a lot of us need to take seriously. If if that's not your specific sin, well, look at your other sins and where are you refusing to deny yourself because your sin is more acceptable. Um, so, sorry, I could keep preaching on this. Obviously, I'm going to stop. <coughs> yes? Um, I appreciated the uh, specificity of how they set this up and saying that sanctification is absolutely something that we are called to pursue, that we can make progress in, but that's only through God's strength. And it's not going to be complete because mm-hmm. uh, my parents' church that they came out of that both sets of grandparents attended and an aunt and uncle for a while um, is still falls in the camp that you can achieve uh, 
a second sanctification, a total holiness on earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that does affect how they live. <laughs> no doubt. I had one of my professors at, at Covenant College tell us a story about how he was preaching at one of those tiny little uh, snake handling churches in the North Carolina mountains. And uh, the lady came up to him afterward, this, this just sweet old lady, and said, Dear Pastor, how long has it been since you sinned? <laughs> and he told us that he was thinking in his heart, like about three seconds <laughs> for, his, for his judging her statement and her theology. Um, but no, that point is really, really well made because um, we can think that unless somebody conquers a specific desire, they have failed to submit to God or they have failed to live in the spirit. That is just as damaging, if not more damaging than saying that your sinful desires are not sinful, right? So um, what this is saying, and and Amy pointed out how intentional they were with the language here, is that the aim of one's sanctification, um, the aim of sanctification in one's sexual life cannot be reduced to attraction to persons of the opposite sex. So if we're thinking specifically of homosexual attraction here, though some persons may experience movement in this direction, but rather it involves growing in grace and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And it's going to be slow and it's going to be uneven. And so we can't look at people who have heinous sins and say, oh, well, you're still struggling with it. What is this? Three years in? You're still struggling with it? Are you sure you have enough faith? We cannot say that. Um, Any more than we can look at our own pride or our own selfishness or our own greed or our own anger issues or whatever it is or our own sexual temptations that are wrong. And, and say that we're not submitting them to Christ. Um, and so the, the goal is that um, all of us be washed with the gospel all the time and trust that the Lord will transform us in his time, even if not until that last day, that all those longings are gone, all those sinful desires are gone. And sometimes um, maybe you've, just, you've seen the depth of your sin and you just said, you just break down weeping and say, Lord, come now. I'm sick of this fight. I don't like these sinful longings inside of me. I want them to be gone. Um, I think that's a good posture to be in because it takes seriously uh, the Spirit's work in your life. Um, and so came in this evening hoping to end right here. And um, I'm going to go ahead and just end us right here. Philippians 4. You've heard this before. You know this passage. Have you heard of Robert Munger's parable, My Heart, Christ's Home? It's a, it's a short story-ish parable type thing. Anjanette and I were looking it up. It would, if you were to read it out loud, it would take about 20 or 30 minutes. So that kind of gives you an idea of how, how long it is. Um, I encourage you to read it. It's not necessarily like rich in Reformed theology. It's not necessarily going to hit all the theology check marks. But what it does is it's a really, it's basically, uh, it's a first person narrative walking Jesus through all the rooms of his heart and welcoming Jesus to live in the living room. And at first we just kind of keep him in the living room or the parlor because we need to clean up the rest. (laughs) Uh, And in the end, it's taking Jesus to that closet in the basement where the skeletons are. 
And so I highly recommend you read that. Uh, maybe you sit down and read it as a family this week sometime. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. Um, but I think this uh, here in Philippians 4 goes hand in hand with that. Let's look at verse 8. <clears throat> Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Your thinking and your practice must be filled with these fruit of the Spirit. Your thinking and your practice are to be transformed. We can choose what we let ourselves love. We can choose what we let our, where we let our minds run. And this is not like some kind of, oh, self-help, just work hard enough and think hard enough and your mind won't go there. But what I'm saying is by the Spirit's help, lean upon Him so that your life is filled with things that are true and lovely and pure and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Think on those things and practice those things, yeah. It's another reminder of what you said in one of your terms a few weeks ago that Good. Praise the Lord. That's what I want. I want us to just think about the fact that, hey, we are, we are being perfected. The Lord is growing us. The Spirit is at work in His children. And that should give us great joy, even if we're not seeing all the progress we wish we had seen. Um, and I do want to read one more quote, but I'm not going to because it would take me three minutes to find it. So um, we're going to stop there. Let me pray. <clears throat> Thank you, gracious Heavenly Father, for caring more about our holiness than you do our happiness. And we thank you for caring more about our holiness than even we do. And we pray that you would grow us to love what is lovely, to think about what is true and noble and right and pure, and to do these things by your Spirit's strength. And when we see sin that is left in us, would we realize its dominion's gone? It has no claim on our hearts, or on our lives, or on our souls because we belong to Christ. And it's in his perfection and his righteousness that we will stand forever and live in your presence. And we praise you for welcoming even sinners like us. We pray that we would be a place that welcomes sinners as we have been welcomed, that loves the unlovable as we have been loved while we were unlovable because of the amazing gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.